Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Abdeljabar. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Danny here, after 10 years, Nine. you've been with, you've been with the, your previous girlfriend. Well, I'm saying it wrong. Previous makes it seem like a past girlfriend. Right. You've been with Walsh. I don't think she uh-huh. cares if I use her name. Probably not. For 10 years, and you finally manned up, and you locked that thing up. Well, not quite 10. I, I kept it under two digits. Nine. It was nine years. Nine years? Okay. May <laughs> as well be 10. You've been, you've been together long enough where you were common law married, right? Basically. <laughs> yeah. If you if, Let's just say if you got divorced, then you would... Not divorced. If you broke up, you would owe her mm-hmm. alimony. Uh, she would owe me alimony. I think she makes more money than I do now. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay, good. Good for her. Well, well, good for you too now because you're engaged. So congratulations! You're Thank going you. to be joining. You're going to be joining the elite club. The elite of club. married people soon. I'm off the market. So, and I'm going to make my wedding so annoying for everyone because I had to go to like ten of them last year. <laughs> so, you should. Fun. You should. I think by the time you get married. Mm-hmm. My wedding pre, my my grand wedding pre, or however you want to say it, my my mm-hmm. wedding turismo mm-hmm. will be over. So you'll probably be the last of my friends who is going to be getting married. So I'll be excited. You should do something that's just super annoying. Yeah, maybe we go to go like fucking Anchorage. Australia or something like that. <laughs> We're going to be getting married in Anchorage. Don't do that. <laughs> Getting married Please on the moon. <laughs> Would you like to attend? <laughs> I'm getting married in a small village on a island in the very south of Argentina. <laughs> yeah. Do it as I don't know, just have a fun one. Just, just do like it as, as retribution for all the weddings that I went to <laughs> that I had to pay for to go to. <laughs> just do it in New York City so I don't have to travel. Just just make it convenient for me. <laughs> all right. That's I'll the most important it. thing. Consider it. <laughs> all right. We should probably jump into it because we have a shit ton of notes to go over. So many. And I feel like this is going to be a really long episode if we don't start now. So let's cut the bullshit. All right. Bullshit. Let's cut, cut the Let's cut the shit. Let's cut the shit, guys. All right. But we maybe, came maybe here to listen one, to immediate episode. Maybe one more little bit of bullshit. I just want to give you props, Henry, because, like, you know, for you folks that are listening right now, you know, I think that Henry is probably one of the best 
like researchers <laughs> uh, on just literally anything, he will find a random first source, like first party source of the most ridiculous anythings. Here's one thing that he found that we're going to largely base uh, this conversation around. It's, it's, he found chapter 16 of the Military Medical Ethics, volume number two. And this was written by Sheldon Harris, PhD. And the chapter is called Japanese Biomedical Experimentation During the World War II Era. This is the random shit that he finds on the internet. And it turned out to be amazing. And dude, I, like, how do you even find shit like this? It's called Google. <laughs> but you have to use the right searches. That's that's the trick. Because most times when you use Google to look for something, you find nothing but crap. You find Wikipedia, um, you know, just really well-used encyclopedias, things like that. Mm -hmm. But if you want to find, like, some real context, some real information, you need to use Boolean searches where you got to make your, your Google searches very creative. You got to look for PDFs. You got to – Google Scholar, a lot of people use. I don't really like Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. But you just have to be creative the way that you search. I guess I've been doing it for so long that I've I've got a knack for finding weird sources. You know, I found this this diary, not a diary, but this pamphlet from this medic. This uh, well, this guy he says he's a a a medic or he trains medics, and he wrote a whole book about how Alexander the Great had PTSD based off the historical <laughs> record. And it was so odd and such a weird thing that I was like, I remember that. I'm going to run with this and just take this as this complete fact without, without uh, <laughs> countering any of this. But you find some real weird shit. But yeah, another, another source for this episode was from a actual microbiologist in Japan who's, act, who's criticized a lot for not, for omitting some of the, the war crimes from the Japanese empire, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, he still writes about it. And he, he had wrote in a journal, the Asia Pacific journal about, um, you know, it's called unit 731 in the Japanese Imperial army's biological warfare warfare program. And his name is Sanushi Kayechi. I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly, but this was written back in the, the late nineties. <laughs> um, so yeah, we find weird sources and we like to bring them to light and talk about them. I think that's one of the things that makes us a little bit different. We find weird sources, but yeah, I, what we're going to talk about today is a incredibly screwed up and fucked up topic. One of yeah. the most fucked up topics that we will have ever talked about. And it's one of those stories where when you read about it, you're like, what the hell is wrong with people? Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell is the matter with people? Yeah. You're just like, what the fuck? And there's a movie about this subject. We're talking about Unit 731. And Unit 731 was a research program, a, a, a biomedical research program in Imperial Japan where they would use human beings as, their, as, as experiments. But it wasn't, it was on a mass scale. There was a film, a really cheesy film, that was made on this topic. It was, it's a Hong Kong film from the 80s called uh, Unit 731, and I think it's called The Devil's Laboratory. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a very, it's called an exploitation film. Right, it's a very grindhousey film. Mm -hmm. Exactly, it's a grindhousey film where right. the whole movie is just people being like, 
disemboweled and mm-hmm. mutilated and frozen and their limbs cut off. And there's a scene where they're testing bullets and how many bullets someone can go, like how many how many bullets can, how many people, how many, excuse me, I'm saying this in reverse. How many people can a bullet go through? Right. And they're testing different guns. They're like, they start off with like a Luger and then they bring up a rifle and then it's just a grotesque film. And it was supposed to portray this, this, this moment in history. So it's on YouTube. So you can actually find it. It's, uh, I mean, it's not really, if you like that type of grindhouse stuff, then you may get some type of weird guilty pleasure in it. If you're, I got about 30 uh, minutes through it and I was like, I, I can't keep watching this. <laughs> okay. So you did watch it. Yeah. 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 There's, there's no point to watch it really. And it's, there's like this horrible cheesy music in the background. Yeah. And then at, you didn't watch the whole thing, but there's later parts where it's a Hong Kong film. So of course there's martial arts. Mm-hmm. There's like some scenes where people start fighting, but it's like martial arts. <laughs> Kung <It's>, Fu. <laughs> Yeah, and the ending is just so completely bizarre. It makes absolutely no sense to the story whatsoever. Well, so, in fairness, uh, this story makes no sense either, and the ending sucks. So you know, there you go. The yeah, actual historical story that is, you know. But um, I don't want to make too much light out of this subject because I mean it's horrible. It's a lot of people suffered. But um, well, why don't we start this by reading a quote? Okay. And the quote is, uh, "I am a war criminal." And it's from a Japanese officer from the Manchurian Secret Police. I'm a war criminal. I served in Manchuko, the phony country created by Japan. I received orders from my unit commander to send four of the arrested men to Unit 731. At the time, I had no sense that, that I was party to any killing. I only filed the papers and sent the men to Unit 731. Subjects had to be dissected before death for our purposes because with time, bacteria would make the body rot. I did it because I thought I was serving the emperor. At first, I felt very bad, but after a few operations, I got used to it. What is scary is that I don't get nightmares. The logs were there were for experimental purposes. There was no guilt associated with the process. I take pride in having taken part in this work. I have no regrets. I was at war. At the beginning, he looked intelligent he had, and had fair skin. At the terminal stage, he looked different, and his skin turned black. So basically, it's the, the first-hand account of somebody who was serving at this. And, you know, they the, this movie actually touches on this where, you know, the guy, one of the scientists ends up going insane because he can't, t- he can't take the, the brutality. But it shows the other scientists, like, who else? It's cold in here. It's like my wife left the window open. And everyone starts <laughs> yeah. laughing. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> There's scenes like that. It's it also is awfully it has awful dubs on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know those awful like 1990s, 1980s, like way off uh, of the the lip syncing. Yeah, way mm-hmm. off. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, during World War II, uh, many countries they committed awful, terrible atrocities. But this was at like a, just a much higher level uh, in terms of biomedical research and human experimentation conducted on thousands of different people and resulting in thousands of deaths. And, you know, of course, it violated things like the Geneva Conventions and, uh, you know, any type of international law. But what's really interesting is that Japan 
Japanese research on this is kind of, I don't want to say it's ignored, but it's not really talked as much as like the German side of that. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe you can go on the differences or why you think it's that way. No, for sure. I mean, like, countries like both Japan and Germany totally ignored, you know, Geneva Conventions and the, and the Hague Conventions and things like that. But the difference, I think, between Germany and Japan here is that the world recognized that the experiments that were conducted in Nazi Germany were war crimes, but very little was said about the Japanese biomedical experimentation that took place. And, you know, the Japanese doctors were, weren't were held accountable for their actions, whereas the German ones were, or at least many of them were, right? And I think this lack of accountability from the international community, and, and of course here I mean the USA, uh, paired with, you know, Japan's, I guess, historic unwillingness to talk about what happened uh, is why uh, people who don't know much about this particular topic, you know, the extent of, of Japan's biomedical research and, and experimentations and you know people didn't even know about this until like the 80s and 90s so decades and decades later so today we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about the state of medical ethics leading up to the war historical context around that also a bit of racism uh, nationalistic racism in japan during this period and we're going to take a detailed look at the extreme experimentation <laughs> that Japanese researchers conducted during this period. Yeah. And and again, I think it's important to highlight that this just wasn't, this wasn't at the time. It wasn't some fringe secret thing like an MK ultra in the U S carried out by some, but by an intelligence agency, right? The, The program involved hundreds of thousands of civilians and then also prisoners of war and then, uh, you know, tens of thousands of researchers and military personnel and civilian personnel were involved. The projects were funded directly from Tokyo. It was common knowledge across the entire military. It was also common knowledge across acad- uh, academia. In fact, this research was a priority across mm-hmm. a lot of biology programs, across a different, you know, high level you know, the higher uh, tier Japanese universities. So when you look at the details of these, you know, biomedical experimentation programs, they're, they're totally, you know, weird and freaky and messed up. Yeah. Just to give you a sense and, and just not to jump too far ahead, but we're talking about, you know, expose, intentionally exposing people to things like anthrax and CO right. poisoning and smallpox and the mm-hmm. plague Right. And mustard gas and typhus and typhoid and and um, it's just a it was just like a crazy uh, crazy crime against humanity, um, but yeah, what's uh so I guess why don't we start by doing this? Who who was in on all this? Sure, uh, I mean everyone uh, in in a nutshell. Uh, Japanese medical experts, academic professionals, you know, they, they were probably among the biggest groups of people uh, who participated in these experiments. And, uh, you know, a lot of these high-skilled and well-educated professionals, they they directly participated in the killings, right? They, they provided the, the experience and the, and the know-how for the development and the implementation of these research programs, which begs the question, you know, how do such educated people commit such terrible, you know, 
atrocious acts. And I think there's there's a there's a lot of reasons for this. None of them are good, but there are reasons. And I think the uglier reason was this idea of the pursuit of scientific truth, and I'm using air quotes here. In other words, just science for the sake of science, where you know the idea is basically like human lives were just the cost of doing science. And for others, I think the rationale was more around career advancement. So, you know, for people like support staff, uh, a lot of them joined, you know, and did some of this work because the pay was good. Oftentimes it was even higher than that of the teachers who educated them, you know, years ago. So, I mean, put yourself in that position. You know, how much would you have to want that promotion? How much money would would you need to get in a raise or whatever to be like cool with doing such cruel experiments to other people? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that. But you know, these these were some of the these were some of the rationales that came out. You know, during some of the investigations that eventually sparked up in the you know seventies, eighties, and nineties. And shockingly, some others who didn't participate in the killings, they really didn't look down on their colleagues who did. There was a bit of a culture going on at the time of not really giving a fuck or, or really questioning the ethics of these experiments. You know, Medical schools, dental schools, veterinary schools, they were supplying their best students for these bio and chemical warfare programs. You know, the directors of these laboratories recruited students at some of Japan's best schools. They held public lectures. They showed movies and photographs of these human experiments. And it was all over the place. It was very overt. It wasn't, like you said, it's not at all like this MK Ultra thing where they're abducting people and giving them acid and seeing if they can fucking do psychic shit. No, this was like very rigorously and, and, and strangely scientific. If, if, I'm going to be very careful about how I explain it, but it was, it was very, very regulated. And, you know, these professors encouraged their brightest students to enlist in these programs, and nobody ever talked about the ethics of it, like whether or not it was a good thing to do. I think there's, there's this, like, lack of accountability from your peers, from your teachers, and definitely not the government. And, and that just all kind of makes doing a bad thing easy or easier. Yeah, it's kind of like the book in the book Ordinary Men mm-hmm. by Chris Browning, where it's about these ordinary guys. They're middle-aged guys, and they become part of the Polish uh, occupying police force, right? Because they're older, so they're not going on the front lines. They're they're policemen in the occupied territory, and mm-hmm. it just takes you from the beginning of their life where they're ordinary, you know, middle-aged guys to where they're doing brutal, horrible things to, mm-hmm. to Jews and Poles and, and whatnot. So it's like, it's, um, it just, it's, you become immune to it in society. It's, it's like hard to, when you reflect about your, your own self and you wonder, man, I wonder what I would do in that situation. Everyone, I think wants to, everyone wants to think that they would be, Oh, well, I'd be righteous. Right. I'd I would speak, be moral. I'd speak out against that. My right? moral compass would guide me to the light. You mm-hmm. know, I wouldn't partake in this type of horrible thing going on. But you never know, like how you would right. re- actually react right. in those situations. Like, you know, if all of your peer, if it's so socially accepted to take a China person, a Chinaman, take a take a Chinese person, 
And I'm just saying it from the Japanese context at that time because there right. was this racial sep- supremacy thing going on Correct. between Asians. They, they essentially just, you know, at, at this time, believed that they were the top Asians. Right. They still kind of do. <laughs> no, they like, definitely do. But well, let's not but get into they that. They really, <laughs> really. I mean, this was this was like on steroids, right? In in the nineteen. This was public policy then, <laughs> and this was. I mean, the whole world was racist. You know, white right. whites weren't just the only racist. The age, Asians were racist too, and you know there was also programs in the early twentieth century that were super freaky and fucked up in America as well, right. like the like Tuskegee the pro- syphilis yeah. experiments. Yeah, Maybe we can talk about like, that later if we have time. This was the only society that's ever conducted it. Right. This was just probably at its highest and probably most cruel scale. Right. But the United States in the early 1900s, there was, you know, awful eugenics programs. Right. Where people were being forced to be sterilized and in the, mm-hmm. the blanket of people, the people who fell under the umbrella of, of uh, mentally retarded, which they which they were trying to do. It included people who had, like, you know, drug addiction and things like that. Right. Or, you know, it was such a wide net of people where they were, um, you know, really believed. Like, the science told them at that time that, well, obviously, if you take good stock and you breed them with, another, with other good stock, you're going to continue getting more good stock. Right. There's, like, a famous quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. It's not famous, but it's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt where he's like, well, it's common sense. If you take two pigs, and I'm paraphrasing it, but right. it's along the lines of if you take two pigs, obviously you need to get two strong pigs to make a better hog. Right. Um, and that's know, that's how they, they thought about this. They reduced them to like, they reduced human beings to things. There was also, we, yeah. we had a whole episode on this uh, for, you know, Puerto Rico, like in peculiar Puerto Rican history. And, you know, one of the things that I pointed out in that episode was that, you know, uh, uh, d- during the 30s to the 50s, a lot of uh, Puerto Rican women were sterilized, forced sterilization, um, some of them chemically. And a lot of the reasons why we have good birth control pills is because they tested a bunch of that shit on Puerto Rican women. And many of them ended up becoming sterile because of it, you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's happening all the, all over the world and was happening all over the world at the time. Um, but I think this this Japanese stuff was just on uh, it was on another level um and and you know part of it was just this culture right another part of it was just straight up the japanese military was in on it right and as as you'll see a lot of the the worst things in history are are you know direct products of of a military force right and 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 these experiments had a they had an aim and that was to make weapons biochemical or you know, bi- biological or chemical weapons. And, you know, they, they organized and structured and, and systematically, you know, put human beings through these experiments. And this was basically a feature of the military planning during the, the, the years leading up to World War II and during the war itself. It only ever stopped literally right when they, when they gave up, when they capitulated. And crazy amounts of resources were given by the authorities in Tokyo for projects that ultimately ended up killing hundreds of thousands of people. And everybody in the military knew what was up. It wasn't a, it was not even a secret. Most members of Jap- Japan's like military medical units were aware, likely because they themselves were involved. 
uh, senior officers, they either knew about the brutal treatment of civilians or prisoners of war, uh, or they were the ones who gave the orders to do it. High command in the Kwantung army, you know, was also aware of what was going down, mostly because they were the ones that were promulgating it, you know. High and, command and in Tokyo. Quant- and, and, for people who don't, and for people who don't know what the Kwantung army yeah. was, it was like the territorial defense force of the of Manchur of Manchuko, which was the annexed area in northern China. Right, Manchuria. Uh, mm-hmm. Of Manchuria. And they had like their own territorial defense and it was the Kwantung Army. Right. But it was it was the Japanese army. It was, it was the Japanese colony. Right. But I just wanted to make sure people understood that part of it. Because it, this this setting mostly takes place in Manchuria. Right. Now I guess which is the northeast China. I guess the, the to to set the record straight here uh, officially and on the books, the high command of, in Tokyo denies any knowledge of these activities because, of course, they do. But this was kind of like an open secret, right? There were plenty of evidence that the generals were responsible for the military planning of it, that, you know, everyone from top down enthusiastically supported biomedical research, which involved human experimentation, right? Yeah, and after World War II, when the Japanese surrendered, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not really entirely clear how much Emperor Hirohito knew or had control of it. I mean, he probably knew, well, understood let's, let's what was going that. on. Yeah, let's let's but, talk about that. But there's a reason why that there was a reason why the U.S. kind of went easy on the war tribunals in Japan's case because mm. they knew they had to they wanted to live with them and ultimately they wanted to transform them into to, to allies to be a bulwark against the Soviet Union because one of the reasons why and this is one of the theories and you can definitely argue this isn't correct but I think there's truth to it one of the reasons why the United States was in such a rush to end the war and drop well it wasn't necessary to end the war but it was more so to to scare all the parties straight, dropping nukes on um, the reason why they dropped the nukes on Japan was to scare the hell out of the Soviet Union. Right. Um, so their goal was to live with them afterwards and and uh, you know not have them invaded because at that time the Soviet Union was had already had already invaded not mainland Japan but Japan's northern islands. Mm-hmm. Um, so. They couldn't go around to be like, "Look, we're going to take the emperor and put him on this hard, this horrible board tribunal and sentence him and and basically deal with an insurgency for the rest of our lives." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they understood that the that you know the emperor. I mean, he was he was he was a god, you know. Uh, but but everyone in in Japanese government was in on this, and it wasn't just the emperor. You know, they were the ones that were signing the checks and giving the green lights. You know, they supplied the budgets, the personnel, the material, everything that they needed to get it done. But but to to be clear, by government, I mean all of it, right? The central government that represented the the royal family's interests, the royal family themselves, and also the civilian government too, because there was an elected civilian government that was in on this as well. But let's. Let's let's take a step back and talk about Hirohito because you asked, you know, and, and you kind of pointed this out, like it was unclear, you know, whether or not he was really involved or whether he knew what was going down. And honestly, after reading a bunch of this things, I I think he knew and I think he just turned a blind eye. And here's why. 
So him and, you know, members of his extended royal family, you know, I think they played a really big role in these projects. So Hirohito himself, he was generally like a cautious, kind of well-intentioned person. I think that's, you know, a lot of historians say that about him. But he was also a strong nationalist, and he was pretty dedicated to preserving the monarchy just so he can stay alive, you know? Um, he, he very rarely went against any of the decisions that was made by the government or the military. And he accepted almost every proposal that the government put in front of him during his reign, including these biowarfare programs. So he was greenlighting them all. And other members of the imperial family were either involved in or aware of these biomedical experimentation programs. For example, Prince Chichibu, which is Hirohito's younger brother, was a follower of these ultra-right-wing like militarist groups. And he attended a bunch of these lectures and demonstrations on biological warfare research. His younger brother. Hirohito's youngest brother, Prince Mikasa, he also visited these facilities and watched these human experiments happening. The emperor's uncle, Prince, uh, oh shit, Naruhiko, uh, he toured a bunch of these facilities uh, and you know he also pers personally witnessed the human experiments. His cousin, Prince Takeda, served as the chief financial officer for the Kwantung army, who was the army that was controlling all the money and gave, you know, gave all this funding to these camps that were set up in, in, in Manchuko or, or Manchuria um, that was doing the human experiments. So literally everyone around Hirohito is either directly involved with it or has seen it themselves or have heard of it. And you're telling me that he didn't? It's kind of doubtful. Now, he was briefed on pretty much all of Japan's military plans and activities by default because he's the... He's the emperor, uh, but he never really expressed his views openly about, you know, some of the decisions that were taken by the military. The craziest part about this, and I think we've talked about this in prior episodes, was that his advisors were basically free to interpret his body movements as either agreement or disagreement. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Like, you would go into the room with the emperor and be like, hey, we're going to um, we're gonna drop, uh, you know, 150 kilograms of anthrax on a town to see what happens. And then homeboy would wave his finger and whoever said that got to choose whether that finger wave was a good finger wave or a bad one. <laughs> oh, he put his head down and started crying. And he said he started saying, God, have mercy on us. That means yes. <laughs> that must mean a yes, right? <laughs> that, yeah. that means that, mean, that is un- unequivocally a yes, right? right. I mean, that's, that's the situation that, that Hirohito found himself in. And, and what's so interesting about all this is that Hirohito himself is a trained biologist. And he was familiar with ethical standards that were practiced in, you know, medical research. So you would think that he would have known better or at least felt some kind of way about this, these human sacrifices. Of course, in his defense, you could also argue that the emperor wasn't fully or accurately informed about the extent of the human tests, you know, to make these weapons. Well, well, let me stop you right there because you said something interested, interesting, sacrifices, mm-hmm. which is word that that came up in and basically like every paper or, or anything about this in the journal where they were referred to as sacrifices that's right meaning uh, i guess that's their best attempt in making a case why these deaths were necessary right i mean they're they're it's just dead bodies for but science they sacrifice yeah, sacrifice science but that's the terminology mm-hmm. sacrifices but yeah i mean maybe he wasn't fully informed you know but he had to have been a little bit aware of what was going on and of course if he wanted more information he always could have asked he's the fucking emperor right so in my opinion based on what i've learned i think bare minimum hirohito was complicit yeah or bare minimum yeah, of course, but remember the the Japanese emperor is not. He's like a somewhere in between the British monarch and the you know the Tsar of Russia. No, that's not a good way to say it. That's like right in the middle. They're they're a step above the British monarch in terms of power that they hold, at least at this time. But they're still not actually running the government. Yeah, I mean, like today, but then. You know? Yeah, back then they still didn't really have that much government power. I don't know. He was the absolute monarch. His what he said went. Except he the the problem is he didn't they, say anything. That was but the they step but they intentionally stepped out of government affairs. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't the norm for emperors to right because they're gods. They can't be. They can't be bothered. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they can't be bothered by the politics of this world. Right. All right. So let's talk about the civilian government because they were involved. Right. That's the actual government. So. The Japanese Constitution of 1889, they set up like a bicameral parliament, right? And it consisted of an upper house, which was like 
you know, the, the, it was made up of these peers of the realm, they're called, and a lower house of representatives. So super similar to like the U.S., right? They had a Senate and they had a house of representatives. Um, but until 1925, the lower house was controlled by basically an, olig- an oligarchy of like wealthy businessmen, a bunch of bureaucrats, representatives of the army and the navy, pretty much just like elected male taxpayers over the age of 21, right? But it's still an elective government of sorts. Um, so this oligarchy and, and you know, the, the, the early parliament was, I think, pretty moderate in its policies, but this new oligarchy starts replacing them in the 1920s, and they were a lot more radical and a lot more nationalistic. And by the 1930s, public policy was basically written by young, ultra-right-wing, fanatical military officers who were basically intimidating their superiors, including through assassination. And we had yeah, a whole the, ass the, the term, yeah. The, the, yeah, the term, the term, the government, there was a term called government by assassination. Mm-hmm. And, man, we did an, an entire episode on all the assassinations in Japan, and I can't recall every single official, but it was just multiple prime ministers, multiple, like, you know, chief finance members. Right. Like it was on a regular Generals, basis where, like that, yeah. mm-hmm. where, where high, high up civilian and military leaders were regularly, regularly, regularly. And I just made up a new word. Regularly, they were murdered. They were assassinated on a normal basis. Right. It was very, it was very common for there to be political assassinations. Sometimes it seems like it's common now. To so when when um. When man, fuck! Why did I forget his name? When uh, Shinzo Abe was mm-hmm. assassinated recently, right? It wasn't. You're, you, it's it's kind of a throwback to this time period, kind of. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to make to make fun of it, but you have to remember the context of Japanese politics over the past century. Of course, the Japanese government now is not the same Japanese government prior to 1945 they're right. they're completely different japan is, doesn't do anything like that that we know of but uh, that was definitely a a call back to that time period definitely you know, of having this former prime minister and, and shinzo abe was prime minister for for years and years he yeah, came from one of the really most politically elite families in in all of japan um, he's kind of like the face of Japanese politics. Like I think most people, if they only knew one Japanese politician, it would have been Shinzo Abe. Right. They probably and still he was just only murdered. know Shinzo Abe. And he was just assassinated by, I think. I mean, there's, there's all. I read some kind of weird conspiracy theories, but I think most likely it was just a nut job. Yep. It was a crazy radical, you know, political radical, mm-hmm. and um, it, it, it was. It's kind of a throwback to this time period. A little bit. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, in, in this time and, and, you know, maybe there are echoes of this in, in our current time period, but, you know, back then this shift in, in this radical right wing ideology in the Japanese civilian government was, was very crucial in allowing the military to basically carry out all this inhumane biomedical experiments that, that we've been discussing. Yeah. And I think it's worth just talking about 1920s Japan in general, because there was a reason why the politics got so extreme. There was a lot of external pressures dealing with other colonial powers where the Japanese, there was a belief, 
you know, after forming this great nation state and proving their worth in multiple wars, they beat Russia in the Russo-Japanese War in the, turn, right. in the beginning of the century. Prior to that, they take down China in the first Sino-Japanese War. They annex Korea. They're this, becoming this great nation. Right. They jump in into World War One. They mm-hmm. come at the end of World War One, but they still kind of help. Right. And they get nothing for it, really. And they're right. still looked down upon. There's this sense of infer- in, in, um, there's an infer- uh, inferiority complex, right? Inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. I'm extra bad with pronouncing words today. Inferiority complex within Japan where they see these European white powers. They are able to go unchecked with their colonialism. And then when they do it, they're crucified. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? Like, you guys built your your empires by basically carving up all of Asia and all of Africa. Right. You're saying that we can't get in on this? Right. Why? Because we're Asian? And that was kind of the mentality. There was also that, that, that um, cultural significance of the United States limiting immigration from Asia. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a slap in the face for them. They were like, what do you mean? You don't want Asians? What, are you guys better than this? Mm-hmm. So there was this... This um this complex of chip uh, on their shoulder, with, yeah, with, yeah. It gave them this this chip on this shoulder. Um, there was also commie communist movements. There was also you know there's a combination of communist movements, and there was also horrible economic problems. And then in 1923, there was a terrible earthquake that killed right. 100,000 people. So there was an earthquake. Mm-hmm. That I forget the category scale of it. It was huge. It was, it it was, was huge. something huge. It was like a seven point two or seven point three. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the exact number. It was equivalent to the size of the earthquake that recently happened in Turkey and Syria, and probably more people died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people died in this earthquake in Turkey and Syria is because the one of the the fault line on the fault line there was a an area where a lot of shanty uh, poorly built. Buildings. Like shanty, poorly built buildings were created to house refugees. Mm-hmm. Well, in Japan, there was like the same thing going on. I think one of the reasons why there was so much death was that um, a lot of fires were started. Right. Like there, it, the earthquake caused a lot of fires, but totally ravaged Tokyo, killed over 100,000 people. Like 100,000 people in a natural disaster is right. no, That's nuts. It's, 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 it's no joke. Mm-hmm. Then coming in the late 1920s, the U.S. stock market crashes. It sends, right. you know, crazy shockwaves through the Japanese economy. Mm-hmm. So you're entering this period of decline after this kind of Pax Japanese, where in the 19, 1860s they make this unbelievable feat coming out of, you know, coming from a feudal society, you know, pre-Meiji Japan, when they were exposed to European powers they were in panic mode because they were like, oh, shit. Like, we need to catch up to the rest of the world because we're not going to keep this thing going. And they modernize in about two decades. Mm -hmm. They completely modernize, and it's just an amazing feat what they do. You know, from from 1862 or 1860, or 1860, maybe they basically become, you know, a first-rate power. You know, they beat the big bad wolf the russian empire in the early 20th century was called the policeman of europe 
they were recognized as the biggest and best army in Europe. And they beat them in a war. Mainly it was because of their navy, but they beat them in a war. Still beat them, right? So it's there's a decline. And then, you know, when you have these declines, I think you have that's where where these these uh where these these uh nationalist groups that's where they they tend to foster more For in sure. these environments. Sure. When there's an economic downturn, mm-hmm. when there's a humiliation, mm-hmm. when there's like when you're trying to when you're trying to correct the humiliation, that's usually the backbone. Right, and then and then that's how you see hardcore. that shift in the culture too, right? So the, the moment that we start shifting away or or shifting past that that humiliation and trying to rectify that humiliation, shifting more towards nationalism and radicalism there. That's when you start seeing a shift in the overall culture. One one of the ways that that's that that's reflected is you know, for example, in the in the treatment of prison, prisoners of war. Before 1937, you know, Japan was relatively humane. You know, there was no reports of major atrocities by Japan in either the conquests of Korea, China, Manchuria, or the Russo-Japanese World War. Well, there's some there's some some pretty horrible atrocities. With Japan conquering Korea, Korea, right? There's some, there's some pretty terrible ones. Then there's some protests that break out, and we cover this in our episodes mm-hmm. about the, the you know South Korea and North Korea's history. But the Japanese, you know, police force, imperial police force, used to just like shoot in the crowds like nothing mm-hmm. when when there was like um, you know protest movements and in, in uh, cities like Seoul and places. So. They weren't entirely like this humane. Well, force, that's why I said relatively but humane, right? rel- but maybe not, relatively not humane. <laughs> 1937. That's when you really do see the you know really. Right. After that's when the, they stop the, stop giving a shit. The, the the official start of of I guess their World War Two when mm-hmm. they invade China, and that's where you really start to see these these right. these well known atrocities that. You know, books are books are written about still today, Correct. where they're just like, "What the fuck, man? They they, right. they did what?" That's, um, that's you don't get again, that. That's, there. that's after post nineteen thirty seven. Before nineteen thirty seven, yeah, like yeah, they were they weren't fucking peachy, but you know, they, it's not not, not even taking, not even comparable to the post nineteen thirty seven shit that they did. Yeah, it's like in, totally in, when they level. when they invaded Nanking, they they essentially, you know, there's there's horrible reports and. It's called you know, the rape of Nanking. Right? The, rape, like, the rape of Nanking, where there's there's all sorts of horrible atrocities, you know. But it, the most mildest one that you can even I'll even say is that they basically took every every male, and they they did something. They did Genghis uh, Genghis Khan style assassinations, where they just like, okay, we're taking all the males, we're gonna take them to the forest, and we're just gonna shoot them all in a, in a right. circle. And that's what, mm-hmm. and that's like one of the first things that they do when they start to occupy the city. So they, right. there's these, it picks up after the war, and, and obviously there's there's more pressure during the war. That's right. Um, and you know they really continue towards the end of the war. But yeah, there is a difference between yeah. pre nineteen thirty seven and post nineteen thirty seven. What's, wi- what's wild about this is because you know the nationalists, you know, and we've talked about Japanese nationalism in, in different episodes and. And, and talk about how they, they use this concept of Bushido, this war, Japanese warrior code, which largely 
you know, Bushido was co-opted and, and, and like perverted to help serve the nationalist sense. But, you know, Bushido emphasized the nobility of the warrior, right? And, and the importance of treating the enemy with courtesy and honor. But after 1937, they were like, ah, fuck that shit, <laughs> right? Yeah. In, in Bushido, Bushido itself, it's, it's a controversial subject, but right. it's, you know, there's, there's books out and there's, there's a really good book called The Myth of the Samurai, Mm-hmm. Where yeah, I have that the, book, ca- the case is the case is made mm-hmm. that Bushido was like a thing, but not really back in the samurai day. Like people talked about it, but it wasn't like a real code that people followed. Bushido was something that was co-opted by the state to create like a warrior story, and they got the idea to do that by by looking at European by the English knight. So right. they, they adopted chivalry, mm-hmm. and chivalry. Bushido was this romanticized Japanese version of of, chival- of chivalry from mm-hmm. England, and right. you know, they they wanted to have that that tale. They wanted to use that that. Um, if I remember correctly, to, wasn't it wasn't it like written in the U.S. and then imported into Japan? <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yep the soul the soul of Bushido is the book. Right. Or the soul is a soul of the warrior. Man, my memory is so Something bad. Something like that, yeah. I can find it. But it is um yeah, it was it was absolutely written in the US and then it was import exported to Japan. Right. And then it <laughs> which became is funny. this which is which is yeah, it's it is really funny and it became like a bestseller and stuff and it wasn't just a big it was like popular in America first. Right. <laughs> Right, like Teddy Teddy Roosevelt read it, and he said he was in. He's like, "Oh, this is great. <laughs> These samurai, samurai are pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so so Japan ditches Bushido, the idea, you know, and they become kind of dicks to POWs, and and they start doing all these crazy human experiments, and 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 the reason why is kind of complicated, but I think there are a few major themes that play a role in it. You know, there's obviously the rise of nationalism and, and, and more specifically like racism, racist nationalism in Japan, um, that played a huge part in it. Uh, there was this emergence of these crazy secret military societies that's, that played a big part, but also like the influence of just straight up militarism in military medicine in Japan. And we'll talk about all of them, but let's, let's start with the, uh, the nationalism and the racism, you know, we, we've, we've discussed at length in prior episodes, you know, about the Japanese nation state and how it was formed. And, you know, uh, you can go back and listen to those episodes if you want more context and more details. But what's important for this conversation is that, you know, the idea that Japan came out of hundreds of years of isolation from other cultures with this sense of like racial superiority, right? And, you know, they, they, once, once they, you know, Henry, you were saying before, once they went through the Meiji Restoration period and they, you know, beat the Russians and they beat the Chinese in wars. They thought that they were the shit. They thought that they were the highest order of any other race or ethnic group, definitely more so than any other Asian ethnic group. I mean, they literally thought that they were people of divine origin. You know, that idea was propagated by the Shinto faith and the state as a way to legitimize control and, and a sense of this like national identity. Now, if you remember, you know, in the Shinto faith, the emperor was a direct descendant of a god, Amaterasu, and everyone was supposed to just blindly follow his orders. But of course, and this is something that we'll talk a lot about, 
you don't get to hear those orders directly from the emperor. You get those orders from his advisors and the military hierarchy around him. And remember, they just did whatever the fuck they wanted. <laughs> you know, um, they interpreted Hirohito's body language and and you know however it however it fit their agenda. That's how it went down. So. In this in this way, you can kind of say that Hirohito was exploited by his advisors, you know, for their own personal goals. But let's not give him too much of a pass because he could have easily spoken up and did something. Anyway, um, all right. So as as a result of like exploiting the emperor, a lot of these people who participated in unethical practices during the war, they did so because they were just quote following orders, right? They thought that the uh, remember the quote that you that you said in the beginning of the of of this episode here. The guy said he was just following the emperor's orders. Who was he to say no, right? They weren't considering ethics. It was it was literally part of their religion not to doubt the emperor, right? So it's it's so deeply entrenched. And and what happens is that racism in Japan it starts to grow rapidly and it exceeded that of any other Asian country both in theory and in practice. Ultimately, Japanese racist racism, it was super simpler, super similar to the Nazi concept of this superior Aryan race where, you know, you know, the Japanese race or the this Asian race and most Westerners were 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 considered sub races and not worthy of respect. And in particular for the Japanese, light skinned Asians were especially preferred. Right. And this belief provided a rationale for the ill treatment of prisoners of war and civilians who were seen as worthless. Throughout the 20th century, Japan became more and more nationalistic and so, and as a result, a little bit more racist. And these leaders kept using those belief systems, those entrenched cultural belief systems to justify more and more imperial actions in the East and Southeast Asia. And you know, a lot of these ultranationalists gain power in the military and in the civil government. And meanwhile, you know, the, the, the liberals and the moderates, they're basically struggling to hold power, right? And part of the reason why they were struggling to hold power is because the, the ultranationalists were just straight up assassinating them, right? If they didn't go along with the program, you, you're probably going to get offed. So that, that really just added to the moral decay, um, and I think this this led overall to this decline in in morals and ethics in, in the in the society as a whole, and and this especially was manifested, I think, in in the military, in the academia, in business, finance, science, and so on and so forth. Now, Henry, you, you kind of you you basically said this really well earlier, um, but I'll run through it again. You know, after World War One, Japan starts having a series of bad luck. You know. Uh, they didn't get anything. They didn't get any consolation prizes for helping to win World War One, even though they came in late. They had that earthquake that you were talking about that caused a lot of damage. Uh, you know, they had a growing population, but that was unsustainable because it's a fucking island with not that much resources. Um, in you know the twenty nine stock market crash that that hit them impacted their economy as well. So they're having all these like bad strokes of luck, and the only people in the nineteen thirties who were doing well seemed to be the military leaders who were called the quote militarists and they were gaining more and more followers after every single tragedy or national disappointment or national embarrassment basically something bad would happen 
a group of ultranationalists would be like, you know what? It's because of them dark skin Asians. That's why we're not doing well. And then they would get a bunch of support and they would grow in power, you know, and then this cycle would repeat over and over and over again. So every new bad thing was a good thing for these people, for these militarists. So much so that they start creating these secret societies and they were popping up all over the military. And by 1940, there were over 500 of them that we know about. Of course, there's probably a lot more, but there's over 500 that we, that we know about. And these societies were super popular with like these mid-level officers who came from poor, poor, like rural families in the, you know, in, in, in those, in those areas. And, and, you know, they, they basically were convinced that Japan should become a national socialist state, <laughs> which, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with that style of government, that's Nazi state national socialist. They wanted to become Nazis. And they thought that the emperor should be used to gain control over the state. So this is where the idea of exploit the emperor comes from. And in the 20s and 30s, these ultranationalists become super extreme in their beliefs and their tactics. And, you know, they just believed that they were the dominant power in Asia. They, they believed in their own version of Manifest Destiny. You know, they wanted their own colonies. They wanted to get oil and minerals uh, that were controlled by the Europeans and Americans. Um, they thought that, you know, going to the mainland Asia through China was, that was part of their goal. But no matter what, they all kind of agreed that they wanted to expand and they called it, you know, the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. That's a direct quote. That's what they called it. Yeah, that was the common word for it. So the greater right. East... Oh, this is all for the the Greater East Asia co co prosperity sphere, <laughs> which is just such a funny word. We're we're fighting for the the Greater East Asia co prosperity sphere. So there wild. was a time there was a time and and I've read this in, in different books where when Japan was first rising to power, other Asian countries were like, oh shit, well look at that, how about that, finally. Good for an you, Asia, an Asian. An Asian country is finally sticking it to the to the white man, right. and now, you know, this is when it kind of gets bad because, uh, well, they're the first ones that start to get all the terrible shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, secret societies. I mean, that's just common when with the nationalist, with 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 hyper nationalist states. Right. The, 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 another term that's used to describe Japan at this time is fanatical nationalism. Mm-hmm. That's true. And the same thing happens, you know. The same similar thing happened in Serbia in the early in, in the nineteen in, in a lot of, in a lot of states too. Serbia wasn't the only one, but right. in this time period, common. when states when states were being created, these new and states destroyed. were being formed because all these mm-hmm. states are like you know decades old at this point they're still right. in the process of they're still in a process of you know formalizing their power mm-hmm. that's usually when this happens the yep. process of of hyper nationalism uh, hyper nationalism and uh, due to external and internal pressures it, it it ended up being like this you know I, I think a lot of the complex again goes into the is is Related to the external factors of, of dealing with other imperial powers, 
I think that's such a blow to your nationalistic, your nationalist like uh, myth or your 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 uh, nationalistic pride that it can't help. You, I, I feel like these societies wouldn't be able to help them, but like help uh, turning that way. You know, if if the United States just think about a scenario where the U.S. Mm-hmm. There was some humiliating thing that happened with us in China, like a real humiliating like a event happened. <laughs> like a what? What if what if China sent two weather balloons? And what, about just, if, what if it was and, three weather? Balloons? What if it was three weather balloons, and then one of them fell on Mount Rushmore? Right. Imagine the resentment and the humiliation that we would feel as Americans that a weather mm-hmm. balloon landed on Mount Rushmore. Right. We're by the weather balloon right now that was shot down by a F-22 uh, 10 miles outside uh, Rush Mount Rushmore. And uh, we're saying that this is a terrorist attack and we're declaring war on China. No, right. like what if something happened where there was like some type of thing that happened in the South China Sea where let's say like a cruiser got shot and 5,000 sailors died and right. the response from the U.S. wasn't big. And then after that, that same year, there was a horrible economic collapse in the United right. States. And then and, a big earthquake and, and, and or some shit like that. then there was an earthquake that separated California from the from mainland United States. Right. And, you know, the, the volcano underneath um, Yellowstone Park erupted. Right. That, you know, the, 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 there's a the volcano underneath Yellowstone Park that allegedly will... The super volcano? Just, mm-hmm. Yeah, that will yeah. destroy the entire universe if it ever blows up. Right. Let's just say that happens and our population decreases and people... There's, there's high levels of refugees everywhere and there's horrible poverty in the United States. And we lose our... We lose our, um, you know, strategic military bases centered around the world because we can't afford them. And China starts to grow and becomes a superpower. And, you know, they become Japan's new best friend or they subvert Japan and they become the mega power. I feel like the United States would have have movements like this. (laughs) I think I feel like you're developing some societies that would make America great. They would do some Nazi shit. Make America great again. What? You know how like there used to be a make Make America great again, like that was like fifty years ago. You know how like MAGA movement, mm-hmm. the MAGA movement would be there would be a MAGA movement on fucking steroids, right? It It'd would be make like, the MAGA movement look like a fucking look a book club. It would, yeah, it would it would be way crazier, and it it would probably be the people involved would probably be people of power, mm-hmm. um, which would make it you know a lot more. And and they would start killing people. Yeah, they would start Straight killing up. people if there was that type of societal collapse and societal mm-hmm. the the collapse that I just outlined is unlikely, but you know anything is possible. But if this there is what was this calling, um, and then this humiliation that happens, and we right. were able to pin it on on a power, and then um, you know start blaming other races or other countries for other misgivings to the country. Like, I feel like it's possible anywhere. Mm-hmm. But it so just anyway, takes the I mean, right, like, that like, takes the right formula and it can happen. Ex- exactly. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. And, and this formula was literally present in, in 1930s Japan. And then once these secret societies start coming together, they start using violence as, as is expected. And they extort people to get what they want. And so they start assassinating government and military officials that they suspect weren't on their side. You also get a lot of public support for this because, you know, they're the ones that are saying, hey, these are the guys that, that caused our, our embarrassment, our national embarrassment. We got to get rid of them anyway. One of these secret society members uh, even murdered the government's finance minister in 1932 because they thought he was against the military expansion. I think we actually talked about that in the last, in the episode that we did on this one. Yeah, yeah. In, they, um, there was all sorts of assassinations. There was a, right. there was an assassination of a of a man. I forget what politician it was with a samurai sword. Like oh, there was I, like these Isa crazy stories. That was yeah. in 36, right? Dude slashed him into pieces. <laughs> yeah, so there was... Crazy. Yeah, it was a wild time. Now, what's surprising about all these, you know, all these, like, murders is that, you know, the killers get very light punishments. And some of them weren't even prosecuted at all because the the authorities were intimidated. They were like, well, I'm not trying to get killed. So they just let them go. And so assassinations just become part of the militarists' plans. They want to overthrow the government, take control themselves, and and they know that the best way to do that is just kill people. And while they had some attempts to overthrow the government in 1931 and then again in 1932, they're pretty silly and amateurish, you know. Um, but there were others that were a little bit more serious. For example, some mid-level officers in the Kwantung Army, they triggered the incident in Manchuria from 1931 to 1932 which led Japan to set up the puppet colony in Manchuria, right? They, they, that was a false flag operation. Yeah, they blew up a train track or something, um, mm-hmm. if I can recall, where they, it was completely made up farce. Like they, so just, they, they did their own, they put like through T on T on a train track and they blamed it on right. locals. But that, that gave them their, their rationale, right? And they were just so fr- flagrant about it. And, and the reason why they wanted it, of course, is because the area is rich in coal and iron. And also, you know, it brought the Japanese troops closer to the border with the Soviet Union. So, you know, they thought that Manchuria was necessary. And so they just make up some bullshit and take it. Right. Um, and in February 1936, a bunch of junior officers, uh, they led a rebellion that almost took down the government. But that eventually got put down. 
And there was just like a lot of these plans in the works that were coming out of these secret societies. They just like desperately wanted to take control of the government uh, or just force them to do what they wanted. And in a lot of ways, they kind of succeeded. You know, by the mid-1930s, these ultra-militarists basically had intimidated the entire military so much so that, you know, they were practically in control of all the strategy and objectives. And, you know, as a result, you know, we see border wars with Soviet Union in 1938 and 39, and ultimately with the United States and Britain and their allies in 1941. Like all of those like belligerent actions that Japan took were the direct result of these secret societies that were intimidating the high command with, you know, government by assassination. And this same belligerence, to kind of come back to our, our topic here, is the same reason why we have these fucked up biowarfare experiments. So that was kind of the nationalist approach. Now, another thing that you know we can talk about why this all happened is is the influence of, of militarism on on military medicine in Japan. So a little bit of background on that, you know, in the early 20th century medical school students in Japan, they got their training for the most part in army or navy medical schools. Um, and, you know, they, they got courses in microbiology and anatomy and chemistry and all the, you know, all the, all the things that you need to do to get, become a doctor. And, and they were all really good schools too and, and top-notch educations. But the big problem about all these medical institutions in Japan was that none of them had formal medical ethics courses. They just didn't even teach ethics. So that meant that ethical and moral considerations weren't ever taken into consideration when when these doctors were making diagnoses or when they were deciding on treatment plans. I mean, medical school graduates didn't learn about the Hippocratic Oath or some Japanese equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath because there weren't any, you know. Um, they didn't know... Japan didn't even have laws to protect patients from like non-consensual medical treatments. <laughs> like there's just, that wasn't a thing there. And so when these doctors start joining the Japanese military in the thirties and forties, you know, they're pretty busy, right? They're learning training, right? They're learning about the military and they're getting ready for battle. And ethics definitely wasn't on the agenda for that either. And, and this is all very interesting because Japan, Japan is a party to the Hague Convention before this. And they didn't ratify the Geneva Protocol or the, on the treatment of prisoners, but they, they did say on many occasions that they would, that they would follow it, maybe. <laughs> but as the time went on, they, basically they got less interested in these kinds of, you know, like be nice to prisoners of war. So, you know, you, here you are. You're a medical officer. You went to school. School was mostly taught by military institutions. There was no ethics trainings. There are no laws in Japan at the time to protect, um, you know, your, your patients. And now you're joining the military for the war effort, and they definitely don't give a shit about military ethics. So you just don't even know. That's not even a thing. You maybe got a few hours of lectures on international law, but most of it was focused on Japanese law, which, again, there was no law against a lot of the shit. So that means a lot of these medical professionals, they straight up just didn't even know 
that there was international laws against doing like terrible human experiments. Now they probably should have known better, like as a human being, but like just try and put yourself in those shoes. Like they literally did not know, you know, and you know, as, as world war two goes on, Japanese military was being controlled by these fanatics who were more interesting in, in, in basically, you know, getting a career bump than protecting Japanese citizens. And they didn't seem to give a shit about protecting soldiers or preventing them from committing war crimes. You know, in fact, there were so bad that, that they literally just assassinated generals <laughs> for fun or to, to get their own aims done. The crazy thing about all this, I think, is that because they knew that their punishment was going to be minimal, if not at all, they let them do it. So this created an environment where all these medical officers, they basically assumed that they could do anything that they want, conduct any experiment that they want on any prisoner without their consent or with their consent in any way that they wanted, and they're not going to get in trouble. Nobody cares. Literally no one cares. And, and then you have these high-ranking officers who are straight up mistreating their, their subordinates, other Japanese people. And then, you know, those officers are going to start treating the prisoners of war the same way, right? It's not hard to imagine that if you're a soldier, you know, and you get mistreated by your own superiors, that why would you treat your enemies any better, right? So this is like militaristic, just shitty culture. It's like, like, think toxic masculinity is bad like this they just had a really shitty shitty culture in their military and and it was okay to mistreat people like that was just normal to them i think it's what's important to note is that a lot of these medical officers weren't inherently evil i I just think you know they, they just lacked the moral courage to refuse to do bad things yeah, they're 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 products of their times and you know the environment they lived in and all that. But you know, I'm sure they had inner doubts, like the character sure. in this corny movie from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. However, you know, it's a tragic situation, and yeah, 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 I'm, they're probably rotting in hell. But the Definitely. thing is, let's we're we're broadly talking about the medical, the, the influence, the influence on the military, um, or from the military on the medical establishment mm-hmm. and and all that stuff, but. Let's talk about the actual specifics. Like, let's get into, like, who who were the people who started this? You know, we know Ishii Shiro was, was one of the main scientists yep. who was involved in this, who, you know, eventually becomes this. He's a, he's a Japanese Army doctor, I believe, and he retires as a lieutenant general. Mm-hmm. And he starts something up called the Ishiro Network, which is kind of the offspring of this. Right. So let's get into this. Like, where does this bio, biological warfare program start like when do they start doing these medical experiments on involuntary patients or not patients involuntary subjects yep yeah i mean i think ishii shiro is a good place to start because he's like the the main guy right like when you think about this is he's he's like the guy there's plenty of other really messed up you know medical doctors in the japanese army during the time we'll talk about a bunch of them here today but i think this is like if you're going to come away with anyone's name is it's shiro or ishii um he basically he was convinced that biological warfare that that's like the future right like he, i guess he wasn't aware that atomic bombs were an option so bio warfare that was that was the future of warfare for him and 
you know, he, he believed that by promoting research in this area that he can help his country and that he could, you know, get his promotions and, you know, further his own career. And, you know, he got a medical degree from Kyoto's Imperial University in 1920, quickly rose through the ranks. You know, um, he also started joining a lot of these secret societies that were promoting biological warfare as the weapon of the future. So that's where he gets a lot of these ideas. Yeah, and like what he's this brilliant guy who, but who's also an ultranationalist who was, um, I guess he had the skill of persuading other people. And what one of these other people that he persuades is this army surgeon general. Um, I guess he's also the minister of health as well. Mm-hmm. Kozumai Shiokiko. Close enough. How does that sound? <laughs> Kozumai. Chico Hiko, Chico Hiko. Um, he was one of his allies in securing like this, profe- you know, this professorship in Tokyo's uh, Army Medical College, which is the most prestigious school within in Japan. And thanks to his intelligence and political connections, um, you know, Ishii, you know, had been promoted throughout, you know, the, you know his his tenure, and, and eventually becomes Lieutenant General. Um, but it's worth noting that Kozimi was, I guess he was doubtful of his character. Um, however, he still ends up supporting him at the end of it. Right. He still, he still let him get a job at, at the medical college, which, you know, okay, you had your doubts, but you still fucked up. Anyway, so as, as, as Ishii was, was, you know, doing his thing, professor of immunology at, at the Tokyo Army of Medical College. You know, he, he starts conducting these secret, uh, albeit very limiting, involuntary experiments on, on humans um, in his lab as early as 1930. But, you know, he quickly realized that Tokyo is not really a good place to do large-scale bio-warfare experiments, right? I mean, you can imagine he might fuck up and kill everybody in Tokyo. So with his connections in the high command, he secures a posting in um, Manchuko, which is the new you know, puppet colony that they set up in 1932. And the Kwantung army was super impressed with Ishii and his plans. And they gave him lots of staff and money and, and all kinds of materials to get started on secret biological warfare experiments in a, in a city called Harbin, which is uh, super close to the uh, Soviet's um, Siberian border. And Harbin also ended up not being super private enough um, for some of the heinous shit that he was doing. So Ishii found a better location for his work uh, in, in a isolated village called Baiyinhe. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, he built a, a big-ass facility there. Um, and it was a research laboratory and a prison for political prisoners and also just ordinary criminals. And the whole thing was pretty secretive and not a lot of people knew what was going on inside and the locals called the facility the Zongma Castle because uh, it looked like a palace from the outside, apparently. Anyway, at this castle, Ishii and his colleagues, they start doing you know, experiments on hundreds of prisoners between 32 and 35. And you know, the subjects were usually political prisoners. But when they weren't available, the Japanese would look at the general prison population or they would just straight up capture people, uh, you know, guerrillas or whoever, uh, whoever they wanted. And... You know, these experiments were uh, absolutely terrible, fucking horrific shit. For example, these prisoners were 
they, they started just taking a lot of blood out of them, right? They would just suck the blood out of them, just see what would happen. And then, you know, eventually they would die or be, quote, sacrificed. Some prisoners were electrocuted, and if they survived, they were also, quote, sacrificed. Vivisection was, in particular, probably the worst thing that, that was going on. Um, that's that's what is it? What is the vivisection? Vivis- I didn't know what it was before reading this. Dude, vivisection is like an autopsy, but you're like alive. Okay, so, that sucks. Yeah. So, like, let's say they wanted to study the heart, but they didn't want to study the heart of a dead heart. They wanted to study an alive heart. So they would cut your chest open while you're alive and take your heart out for examination while you're alive. It's fucked well, it up. Sucks, sucks to be that guy. Yeah. There, there are many of those guys. But I imagine you, you just die, though, right? Like, you die pretty quickly when they cut when they Sometimes. I mean, sometimes they heart. use, like, How like do you live some without anesthetics your so that you would stay alive enough. Right? But how can you take your heart out and live for an instant? Like, don't... I'm I mean, no biologist. You don't, you don't die... I mean, you probably die in seconds, right? You probably die very quickly after they, they pull it out. But can you imagine getting your chest cut open? <laughs> Yeah, that part is, I guess, the painful part. Right. That's the part. It's not part. like, um, you know, a Bruce Lee movie. What movie? What kung fu movie where, is it where he rips the heart out of the person? It's like well, such a trope. He so like I guess punched like him anything. in the chest, right? And then his like, hand went straight into his chest. I think that was it. That Enter the I Dragon. I don't know what we're talking about. I think that's a spoof making fun of, making fun of those movies. But it Probably. was like a common uh, kung fu trope of like, Punch him, you know, but like, and then taking someone's heart out. Right. Anyway, so uh, this castle place, right? In in 1934, uh, there was like a an insurrection by the prisoners and a strange, mysterious explosion that nobody really knows the the um, cause of. And so they had to. I don't think they shut it down, but they definitely had to move their operations to a place that was more secure. Uh, and that's and that's when they they ended up moving. Um, to a, a new location, but I guess what's what's important here, and to bring back Hirohito uh, into this mix, another reason why he was totally complicit, you know, a lot of the Japanese military was praising Ishii for the research that he was doing, and Hirohito himself issued a decree in 1936 creating a new army unit, and that was called the Anti-Epidemic Water Supply and Purification Bureau, I swear these names are so fucking nuts. Like, it's just the longest possible name. But he made this bureau, this special anti-epidemic water supply and purification bureau, and guess who he puts as the head of that? Ishii. And and this gave Ishii the perfect cover to establish laboratories for secret biowarfare research on humans, right? Because he's the anti-epidemic water supply and purification bureau head. <laughs> he needs to study bio shit and so he he combined his old unit which was called the togo unit and a bunch of new recruits 
uh, to form this Ishii unit, which later becomes known as Unit 731, right? Unit 731. That's mm-hmm. the one that everyone knows. So mm-hmm. Unit 7. So basically, there's a bunch of these units that are that spring around. Right. Because Unit 731 is not the only one that's doing these No, there's lots of them. Yeah, there's, there's lots, lots of them. Of them. Mm-hmm. Unit 731 is the largest one. It's also the worst one. <laughs> it's also the worst one, but right. it's the it's the most nef- nef- the nefarious one. There's another one in Nanking um, called Unit 1644. Six, yeah. Mm-hmm. That one was really bad, too. Yeah. And then there was another one in Singapore, but they're all over the place. But these are the ones that are systemically, or Unit 731 and the one in Nanking um, are the ones that are syst- systemically doing this type of shit and they're all called the epidemic prevention research laboratory they're they're all under the anti-epidemic water supply and purification bureau <laughs> yeah yeah it's just such a fucking long word um okay so well, Ishii, it kind of reminds me of the co-prosperity wait exactly what is it? they just come up with these the fucking East- names it's like so stupid uh, all right, so Ishii starts to get to work on like these bio warfare uh, things, and that starts growing because he starts getting all these additional funds and equipment because now he's like this big shot, and he even gets his own piece of land in Pingfan in China, which became his Manchurian headquarters, and the facility here was worse than the castle, right? It, and it was bigger and much more heavily guarded. There had multiple fences, barbed wires, you know. And the security was super tight. Only people that had passes from the Kwantung army were en- were allowed to enter. Not even like regular Japanese national could get in. You, it was like super secure. And and during his speech, Ishii's speech to uh, new recruits of the Ping Fan, he basically told the doctors what the philosophy of this you know new institution is. And he he believed that their mission was to challenge all disease causing microorganisms to block, I'm quoting here, block any intrusion roads into the human body and devise the quickest treatment possible. But on the other side, he also stressed the importance of putting aside like your feelings or of compassion for your patients, right? So his, his thought was that their approach to medical research has to be based on the thrill of probing for the truth in natural science. Hard air quotes all over this, by the way, right? And, and, you know, researching the unknown world as a scientist, hard air quotes, but also building a powerful military weapon against the enemy, right? So all of these things were the, 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 the philosophy behind the Ping Fan uh, facility. It's disturbing. It's fucked up. Um, and these local residents were told that Ping Fan was a lumber mill. <laughs> Right, I don't know why it's why it's, I, I it's, find it's a so little funny. funny because it probably looked nothing like a fucking lumber mill, right? Like who who puts barbed wire fences around a lumber mill? It kind of looks like the the pictures I saw. It kind of looks like it kind of looks like the Pentagon. Yep, it it kind of acted like one. Well, no, it doesn't look like the Pentagon. It looks like a it's it's a government building with fucking, it looks like just like a yeah a a very it doesn't look like explicit a <laughs> government building where they do secret things like right. it looks like a building where horrible decisions are made right anyway it doesn't look like a lumber mill no not at all so 
So they're telling the local the local residents, like, ah, don't worry about that thing over there. That's a lumber mill. And the researchers would refer to the subjects as logs. So like the humans, the human beings, they would call them logs. And this was like a way that they were dehumanizing the prisoners who, you know, were, were subject to these experiments. And once inside, these, quote, logs were tested and they were examined. They were autopsied, oftentimes while they were still alive. Uh, and then they were burned in the camps incinerators. And, and, it's, and it's just absolutely, it's so hard to imagine all the fucked up things that took place in that facility. But it was just fucked. And there, there, this wasn't it, right? The, like, Ping Fan was the big one that, you know, that was huge. But, you know, Japanese Army created more than two dozen of these research, like, establishments all over the place. And they were known as water purification units, which is nuts. In total, there were 20,000 people working on various projects across all of these um, research institutions. You know, and they were doing things like investigating diseases, like... Uh, or like anthrax, they were they were investigating yellow fever, typhoid. They were studying the effects of frostbite and high altitude flying. Again, by studying, I mean testing the shit on live human beings and seeing what happens, right? But they also tested you know stuff on plants and uh, excuse me on animals as well. You know, there was this uh, super large research uh, operation called uh, the anti. Uh, here goes another one of these long words again. Uh, Anti-Epizootic Protection of Horses Unit. <laughs> this is super long. Uh, and that was led by this guy, Yujiro. Uh, and it was in, 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 in a city in China I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to say it. But the, the unit was basically focusing on, on crops of poisonous plants and breeding animals for testing purposes. And also they did human experiments too, um, but not as many were killed there as the ping fan facility um and this other dude kitano masaji was also an important figure in this biological warfare enterprise and and he he was probably right behind wakamatsu the guy that i just talked about and ishii in importance and he was also a medical professor at the uh, mukden uh, army medical college but um he also built a a, a research facility uh that did human experiments and and a lot of his papers were based on human experiments as well and he would refer to the humans as monkeys you know for his code words but they were people and you know his research wasn't limited to just one location though there were confirmed research centers in Hylar, beijing rangoon manila singapore bangkok all over the place all over asia Okay. okay, so here's what people want to understand. What if, So we went over some of them. So we know they're essentially organ harvesting mm-hmm. and with live patients, and they're infecting people with diseases. They're, they're infecting them with anthrax. Right. They're infecting them with smallpox. They're infecting them with the plague. Mm-hmm. They're infecting them with... I have a full list of what the things that they do. I lost it. I can't find it. All right, whatever. Wait, here it is. Yeah, so uh, salmonella, yep. CO poisoning, dysentery, mustard gas. Um, what else is here? There's a lot of things I can't even pronounce. I'm assuming they're pretty bad. 
tick encephalitis. Encephalitis? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tuberculosis, typhoid, typhus, um, glanders, ishi. I don't know what that means. All right. What are you, what, what else are they doing there? I, I think, you know, the, the overarching theme here is that most of these experiments had to do with like these pathogens and how they affect the human body and also how they were spread. They're basically trying to figure out, you know, what's the feasibility of producing massive quantities of germs and how can they also make like a viable delivery system for those germs? And finally, what are the best germs to use in biological warfare? That, that was the, the overarching goals. And, you know, okay. the, to like get that done in the ping fan facility, these lab techs, they made a whole lot of pathogens to conduct this research. And they, they bred or brought in tons of animals for this purpose. More than 50,000 rats and chickens and, you know, per year were brought to ping fan alone. Ishii one time asked for a million rats. Uh, no one knows if he got them or not, but there is a documented evidence of him asking for a million rats. Um, and it wasn't just lab animals that they worked with. They also fucked with like exotic animals like lions and tigers and bears and camels and shit. Um, but Ishii, Ishii made these like special, like, he's also like kind of a pioneer in this, in this like space. He would, he created these special ovens for growing bacteria and, you know, at capacity, Ping Fan could make 3 trillion microorganisms in just a couple of days. And, you know, they were using these things to, to grow bacterias and, and organisms all year round. Um, and his, the output of these things was so high that he could make 150 kilograms of, of some germ or some pathogen for, for just a field test in like a day. And this was just Ping Fan. There were other facilities that were cranking out just as much. And so the Japanese biowarfare researchers, yeah, they, they could make a load of these germs, but they had a lot of trouble finding out ways to deliver them effectively. So they tried out, you know, adding them to artillery shells, like gas shells or 75 millimeter high explosive shells. And they were just like trying to pump them all full of bacteria, but that didn't really work. And then they thought that like bombs filled with germs would work better and but they couldn't get that right. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then engineers. I was going to add, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish that thought. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say engineers were making these like high altitude bombs, steel walled bombs that can hold anthrax spores in them. But that also didn't work. So creating a epidemic within a country is much harder than what they expected. So yeah, I was reading that they were doing um, low altitude bombing was one of their trial tests. Mm -hmm. So they would, cause after they would create these, these diseases that they would, they would test them in the field, but there really wasn't that much success with any of these, these weapons that they created. Like none of them have, none of them really got the death count that they were hoping for, which I'm supposing is in the thou hundreds of thousands, right? If they're building these goal of create, because the goal is they're trying to create something that's highly contagious, right? Right. They they want to do something that's going to have maximum killing potential, and they and they have the capability to create as much of the germs as they need. It's just the delivery methods they couldn't get those to work. Oh, one of the interesting ones, which is kind of unique, was that they were messing around with high altitude balloons. Um, 
they like specifically wanted to send high altitude like weather balloons with like germs in them to the U.S., but that didn't work. And you know, kind of reminds me a little bit of the Chinese spy balloons that we just encountered recently. Oh no, they have they have germs in them. They have COVID. Oh. <laughs> anyway, imagine so, if imagine if the if World War Two went the way of like using these animal weapons you know how well like i US mean bat bombs, bombs. <laughs> yeah exactly it's one of our first episodes german tanks and bat bombs um yeah i mean world war ii was a crazy time for for building weapons but you know these researchers didn't get anywhere with their germ bombs um, but they were making a lot of headway with studying the effects of germs on on humans you know they, they use prisoners to to test you know every single day and uh, it, it's hard to say how many prisoners died from these experiments, but we can make some rough estimations based on post-war statements. Uh, for instance, Major General Kawashima Kiyoshi, he testified that he personally knew that about 600 prisoners died every year at uh, Unit, 730, Unit 731 uh, due to the severe, you know, obviously diseases that they were exposed to. Kaoshima was stationed at Ping Fan from 1941, and he was captured there in 1945. So by his count, about 6,000 prisoners died while he was there. But Ishii and his group started killing people, you know, for science uh, in Tokyo way back in 1930. So you know, that's several years before Kawashima even started taking count. So thousands more were probably killed in Harbin and in, and in the castle and in Ping Fan from 1936 to 1941. Um, lots more people were killed by other units too, right? Units 100, uh, unit 1644, you know, and, and many of the other contingents in all, I think the most conservative estimates of the fatalities could probably be between 10 and 12,000, you know, people who were killed, uh, in, in the name of this research at various facilities. But even that number seems very strikingly low, um, it's just hard to tell because the Japanese didn't necessarily care to count them. Yeah, I mean, could have been tens of thousands. Yep. But basically, I mean, once these once these biowarfare researchers can make germs on massive scale, they you know they they wanted to test to see how effective they would be in large scale, you know, for like large groups of people. They figured, hey, I mean, there's no moral or ethical difference between killing folks in a lab or you know killing people, entire populations of people. So. Uh, outside of the lab, so their their goal was to find out, hey, can we can we use this stuff to kill people? There was this uh, Nomahan incident, which was the first major event where bio uh, biochemical warfare and uh, excuse me, bio warfare and chemical warfare were tested out um, on an opposing military force in in like a a, a big way. So Unit Seven Thirty One and Unit One Hundred and a few satellite units teamed up for a field test and in this incident they fired 2,000 artillery shells that were full of bacteria at Soviet forces of course they didn't really work very well you know this is part of the, the delivery system sucked but they also used a lot of basic delivery methods to to deliver these germs like in many occasions they just straight up dumped germs into the river at night thinking that the you know the enemy is going to drink the water and and like die or something um there's these suicide squads that were sent on these river missions at night that have been published, you know, t- you know, telling their stories about like what they did during the Nomahan fight. But 
during these tests, Japan tried all kinds of different ways to deliver these biological weapons, but nothing was really working. You know, when they were dumping the germs into the river, a lot of it just kind of lost potency when it hit the water. But people still died because about 1,300 Japanese people got sick with epidemics that were directly related to these tests. And, you know, we've, you know, later in, in, in the 80s found out that at least 40 men from the biochemical weapons teams were, who were exposed to these germs died pretty much right after. Um, but somehow Ishii and, and, and others were convincing their bosses that all these tests are a success and they get praised by the emperor himself. Between 1940 and 1942, you get a lot more of these plague tests that were done in different towns and in different cities all over central China, you know, and in Manchuria. And, you know, sometimes they would use planes to attack people with, like, germ bombs. And other times they would take these infected rats and they would let them loose in the, in the communities. Uh, they even, this was particularly fucked up. They would send Japanese doctors to a town and tell them, hey, there's a nearby plague that's happening I've got, you know, the vaccine for it. And instead of like a vaccine, it's germs. It's like the, the actual plague itself, which is incredibly fucked up. Um, another unit was feeding dogs infected pork. Yeah, and the pork had cholera on it. And then they would let these stray dogs loose into the community to get everyone sick. In another situation in Zhangqian, 400 out of 600 people in this community died from a typhoid epidemic after they drank from a well that was contaminated by typhoid. In another case, these villagers were given 3,000 sweet bums with a bunch of like germs inside, and that caused a bunch of people to die. Uh, they also, and this part I didn't really understand, but apparently they had this habit of like leaving contaminated food by the roadside, which apparently Chinese people would walk by like, oh, free food, eat it, and then die. Well, that's why you don't eat. That's why you don't eat food that's on the roadside. Yeah, seriously. I mean, they're they're you know they're probably starving. You know, and they see something free food is. I don't know. I feel bad for them. Basically, these units tried everything that they could, anything that they can think of, to distribute germs. And you know, these field tests were technically stopped in 1943, but a lot of the villages and towns were still exposed to biowarfare attacks from the Japanese until they surrendered in 1945. So I got to actually have a quote that, that you'll find interesting. Okay. And it's about the, it's from Lieutenant journal, Lieutenant journal, Lieutenant. I'm just, I got what Joe Biden's got right now. <laughs> Lieutenant general. Kajitsuka Ryuji. Chief of the medical department of the Kwantung army. What do you say? It is not. It is not as. It is not as easy as some people think. And I, as I, and as I once thought, to deliberately spread infectious disease. While infectious disease spreads readily in natural circumstances, numerous obstacles are encountered when artificially spreading infection, and sometimes great pains must be taken to overcome these. So he was just discussing. So this is actually in response to one of the the, the high altitude, the low altitude bombing campaigns, mm-hmm. um, where they were trying to spread it. And I guess the consensus, what they, what, what you pointed out earlier, it was very difficult for these things to be delivered. It just wouldn't work. Right. And one of the stories about delivering it through the water, 
when they were fighting the Soviets is that one of the guys that actually died was the person who was contaminating the water. Like a drum of water, exactly contaminated water fell on him. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you have this, it's like so dumb to do this type of warfare because you're more likely going to poison your own soldiers. You're going to shoot yourself in the foot, literally, like kind of literally. But you know, it, it wasn't just germs and stuff like that. Like they were also, they were also just doing random random experiments you know uh for for diseases like like there was this experiment where they were injecting the blood of villagers who were immune to malaria into people who had malaria and they ended up killing people doing that also there was this guy dr hirano uh who was curious about what would happen if we just made people like we didn't give them enough to eat like if we starve people what what would happen so he and another doctor decided to give 13 prisoners a diet of, like a super low diet, literally 660 grams of peeled cassava root. I guess that's not a lot. I don't know what 660 grams is because I'm an imperial, but it doesn't sound like a lot to me. And two of the people died within the first 30 days. Two more passed away during the second 30 days. And the remaining nine were allowed to go back to their regular diet, which was also shit. Um, and you know, it killed a lot of people just because they wanted to know what happens if you don't feed people, (laughs) you know, like, like what a dumb, that's a fucking stupid question. You know, I wonder what happens if we don't feed someone, they fucking die. I could have told you that without doing the experiment, you know? Well, I think they're more interested in like, what is the human capacity for hunger before they die? That's exactly. We want to know exactly. It's like, you're going to die. You know, like that's that's what's gonna happen. That's all you need to. We know. want to understand how long it takes for the human to die to 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 die and only six hundred sixty grams of peeled cassava root, which Seriously. I'm assuming is just like leaves, right? right. Or just like roots from the it's ground. Just the root, yeah. So uh, it's, we're we're probably talking about like less than 500 calories, less than 400 calories a day. I would say that's oh, probably generous. Probably, yeah. It's, it's nothing. It's like not not enough to to survive. But but even those things were were bad. But like I think honestly, the worst that I keep coming back to is that vivisection, that live vivisection. It's the absolute worst. Yeah, that would suck. That would totally suck. <laughs> So let me let me tell you a story about this shit. So there's this university called the Kyushu Imperial University. It's one of the medical schools in uh, Fukuoka on the Kyushu Islands. It's one of the most significant medical training institutions in Japan, even to this day, I think. And its its professors were known for being some of the most like highly regarded scholars, um, but they were also doing live vivisection experiments, and and a lot of their you know, assistants or, or interns were helping them and like engaging in these. And they were gruesome. You know, they would take organs from POWs, like take their lungs out or take their stomachs out or their livers out. In one case, they interrupted the blood flow from the arteries to the heart just to see how long it would take to kill it, to kill someone. Again, another one of those things was like, oh, I wonder if I do this, like how long does it take for you to die? One of the uh, instances, they drilled a hole in a, in a subject's head, in their skull, and they stuck a scalpel in their brain to see, like, does this kill them? It's pretty brutal. I mean, like, 
it, it was used for medical research in some ways, but it also used for like non-medical purposes too, you know, just, just seemingly for fun or, you know. Well, well, think about all the lives they saved because now they know that if you shove a knife into somebody's brain, they'll die. They shouldn't do, they, they shouldn't do that. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I mean, I this, after, after, after sticking scalpels into 50 people's heads, I think we're pretty comfortable saying that it's a lethal, it's a lethal impact. Yep, you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. And and now we know that thanks to these fuckheads in Japan. Man, these guys are heroes. <laughs> the Kempei Tai used to use vivisections as well, actually, uh, not not for science, but just to kill people. Um, so uh, this guy Ishibashi, he uh, talks about this this one situation where two Chinese prisoners were suspected of being guerrilla soldiers and uh they like this part i didn't understand they like killed them and like immediately opened up their chests to pull the hearts out just to see what would happen and apparently they were still beating which doesn't make any sense because they killed them but i don't know they killed them and then they killed them again (laughs) yeah they killed them twice (laughs) um also uh interestingly uh there was a lot of airmen american airmen who got captured pow's of war who were also victims of this vivisection in uh, july 1944 uh these japanese surgeons took eight prisoners and and they put them through a a series of tests two of them they tied tourniquets around their arms and legs for like seven to eight hours at a time which obviously cut off the the blood circulation and then and then they took the tourniquets off and both men died within minutes because they died of shock i don't know i'm not a not a medical scientist i don't know why that that would happen but apparently that kills you now we know um the doctors would also like you know keep the skulls of the deceased airmen as souvenirs and a couple of them ended up getting sent to the naval medical school in japan um in another operation they would take out like a lung in another operation they take out a heart and they would be taking them out of like live people and trying to keep them alive just so that they can take out more parts later. All eight men, all eight airmen died on the operating table, uh, which was entirely fucked up. Um, also, there's a lot of research done on STDs, and they would use comfort women for this. We talked about comfort women in, in a few of our other episodes, I think in Japan and the Korean episodes that we've done. Um, but the, the comfort women were used for live vivisection uh, for testing on syphilis. So they tried injecting syphilis into the women, and when that didn't work, they just tried straight-up sexual contact with infected parties. And and whenever a healthy person was infected with syphilis, the researchers would go ahead and, you know, just start cutting out people's organs at different stages of the disease just to see how syphilis was impacting the body at different stages of the disease, but like while they were alive. So, you know, that, that kind of brings me around to the Americans and all this, because obviously when you talk about experiments into syphilis, that, that brings up in my mind the Tuskegee syphilis studies that happened around the same period where we were basically doing the same exact shit. I mean, we might not have been doing live vivisections like the Japanese were, but, you know, in, in these cases... You know, from 1932 to 1972, we were injecting people with syphilis or 
uh, African, and, and, and I'll be very clear about this one. This is specifically African-American men, you know, and, you know, 600 of them, you know, were involved in these trials and almost 400 of them contracted syphilis. And, you know, they were basically, they had the, they had penicillin, they had the treatment for it and they weren't given, you know, the treatment for it because they wanted to study what happens throughout all of these stages of syphilis and nobody really knew about it this was happening in the 30s around the same time the japanese were doing it too nobody nobody found out about this until the media broke the story in 1972 which obviously you know that caused a big drama and you know they created a whole government and whole government entity uh, uh whose you know whole point is to the, it was called the united states public health service which you know was supposed to protect against shit like this. And, you know, I mean, we were doing it also. And, and that kind of leads me to the reason why nobody knows about unit 731 or some of these experiments that Japanese were doing because there was some pretty significant interest from the Americans in the Japanese research. You know, they, the, the allies were aware that, that these scientists like Ishii were, were doing some terrible shit, but they chose not to put them on trial for two reasons. And one of them was Cold War was starting. I think you mentioned this, Henry. You know, U.S. was super afraid of the Soviet Union getting any information from Japan. And, you know, the Soviet Union was particularly also interested in Japan's research on biological weapons. And the U.S. just straight up didn't want them to get the, the information. And also, the United States wanted to gather data on how humans react to biological weapons themselves. They wanted to know, too. They were like, oh, okay, that's fucked up that you did that, but can we compare notes, please? Because we tried this ourselves. Yeah, they're like, you pulled it off? Yeah. Nice. And, you know, in 1943, American scientists figured out that Japan was using these humans for testing purposes, and, and they literally wanted to meet them. They were like, hey, can we meet you and trade notes? And, and, you know, at the end of the war, the Japanese agreed to providing the information, but only if the Americans promised not to prosecute them for war crimes. Americans agreed, and they got the information that they wanted. And, you know, and the Japanese doctors who did these things were not put on trial, and instead they were debriefed, and they wrote reports about it. And that's how we're that's able the, to talk that's about the most, it. That's, that's, the, that's like the, the, the... It's not funny, but it's just... Man, all these all these these people who did such evil things in the war, right? And they were granted immunity at the end. Because Pretty much, we were interested in their in their research because we wanted to know. They're like, man, well, we can't just like let all these sacrifices go in vain. <laughs> Imagine if they seriously, said that, that was the man, that these was sacrifices the would be in that vain was the if we if if we wouldn't at least take their notes. So, right. well, that's. The, it's not very a, a. It's not a very happy. It's not, and it, and it gets worse. And I'm sorry to say, and, and this is the last thing I'll say before, because I know we've been going on for quite some time now. This is the last thing I'll point out. After World War II, the the Japanese medical community didn't make any significant changes, and continued to follow the same like questionable moral path. Like not a lot of people in the medical community advocated for like, hey, maybe we should have higher ethical standards 
And and as a result, a lot of the same guys from these biowarfare labs, they were also able to assume like big roles in post-war Japanese medical and scientific communities. Kind of like very similar to when we were talking about the left-wing guerrillas in German in West Germany and how all these like kids were like, hey, that teacher is a Nazi. Like he's literally a Nazi and he's still like the headmaster of the school. Why why is there still Nazis here? Right? Well, same idea. But all of these, you know, fucking murderer doctors are now taking up all of these high roles and positions of power in universities, as deans of medical schools, as professors. They even worked in private industries or in government agencies, you know, and they got all these public honors and, you know, they didn't get in trouble. The, the most heinous thing is that most, a lot of these people who did this shit played a role in setting up the Japanese National Institute of Health, which is it's an organization that still exists to this day. Well, I guess I guess people are complex. There's good and evil. No, I'm making a joke. What I mean, yeah, these people were totally evil and they should they're they're hopefully rotting in hell. That's and the only way to really end this episode, right? I I I can imagine that they are. All right. If hell exists. So, something I forgot to do in the beginning of this episode, oh yeah, is explain the absolute dire importance that you guys help us out with this one task. It would mean the it would absolutely mean the world to us if you did this, and that is fill out the survey monkey survey. Fill it out. The link is in the description. And we absolutely requ- we require it. <laughs> Emperor Hirohito says you must fill out the form. If you don't <laughs> fill it out, the show will disappear. The show will will just be in a different language. Yeah. Like for going forward, if it doesn't fill out, like on your phone, we ha- we have programmed the survey. The only pe- the only way that you can continue listening to this show is by filling out the survey. Right. And someone's like, huh, didn't want to listen to you idiots anyway. <laughs> In reality, we don't have that ability. Not but yet. It would greatly least. help us if you guys filled out the Survey Monkey survey. It's in the link in the show notes. And then just take three minutes, answer the questions in the survey. You get to put your feedback in there. It's going to ask you questions. And you can win $500 in Amazon money. Amazon dollars. And just think about all the shit you can buy with $500 from Amazon. I wish I had $500 from Amazon. I wish I won this. Yeah. <laughs> I, that'd be awesome. I'd buy you a microphone much? for Joe Solis Mullen. <laughs> I, would also, I would also buy baby stuff for my child oh, coming yeah, on that. Fair enough. Yeah, you need baby shit. I would buy a shitload of baby stuff. Should we start like a, <laughs> like a registry for you? <laughs> Bro history registry? No. We already have most of that stuff taken care of. We, I can't even hold anything else in my home. All right, guys. Fill out the survey monkey stuff, please. It will really help us, and we'll stop annoying you once we get enough people who do it. Um, all right. You can also rate and review the podcast. That is a great way to help our show. Danny, do you want to say anything before we conclude? Nope. All right. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's another episode on our Patreon we started our Russian Revolution series. It's only on Patreon for now. So if you want access to the beginning of our Russian Revolution series, 
go to there. All right, guys. See you later. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.